Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. It's National Hispanic Heritage Month, so today we're speaking with three leaders working to improve the health and well-being of Hispanic communities in Arizona. Amanda Aguirre is the president and CEO of the Regional Center for Border Health. Florabea Redondo Martinez is the executive director for Arizona Community Health Workers Association, commonly known as ASCHOW. And Stephanie Pada serves as executive director for All In Education. What's perhaps most memorable about this panel is that these leaders aren't only working for Arizona's Hispanic communities, but they are of Arizona's Hispanic communities, and they work with their communities. Hispanic heritage may be officially appreciated for just 30 days each year in the U.S., but for these three women, there's no question it is the fuel that drives them every single day. I'm here with an amazing panel of statewide leaders. First, we have Ms. Stephanie Pata, Executive Director of All In Education. Stephanie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Marcus, for having me. Thanks so much for being here. And CEO of the Regional Center for Border Health from Yuma, Arizona, Amanda Aguirre. Amanda, how are you? Good morning, Marcus. Very well. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much for being with us. And from the Arizona Community Health Workers Association, Ms. Florabella Redondo Martinez. Florabella, how are you today? Good morning, Marcus. I'm great. Thank you for the invite. Thanks for being here, Flor. All right, so let's dive in. Tell us about who you are. Thank you for the invitation, Marcus. A pleasure to be here with these amazing ladies as well today, this morning. So uh, I'm Amanda Garrett. I'm president and CEO of the Regional Center for Border Health. Um, I'm a former state senator. I also run and operate seven or eight rural health clinics throughout Yuma, La Paz, and Mojave County. So we're expanding and growing tremendously. So uh, again, thank you for the invitation. Florabella, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi. Gracias, Marcos, because you're inviting me to this podcast. It's really exciting. I'm Floribella Redondo Martinez, and I'm from Yuma, Arizona. And I've been a community health worker promotora for almost 30 years now. I'm a co-founder and also the executive director for the Arizona Community Health Workers Association and always working around strengthening and really bringing the CHW workers to the front, forefront of every single thing that was coming around health in Arizona. It's great to have you here, Flor, and, and thank you so much for the critical work that you're doing and to, to build the CHW workforce across the state. And last but not least, representing All In Education Arizona, Stephanie Pada. Stephanie, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you so much, Marcus, for the invite. And I, I, um, I don't know if you did this on purpose, but I love that there are three Latinas from Yuma, Arizona on this podcast. I, too, was born and raised in Yuma. I now uh, live up in Phoenix. Uh, and have the honor and privilege of running uh, a new education advocacy organization called All In Education. We're really focused on building a more equitable and just education system here in Arizona. Um, Our theory of change is really rooted in getting more Latinos into positions of power, influence, and authority at all levels of education. Keep saying from the classroom to the boardroom, we need our lived experience and, and the perspective of our students and families at the table. So very excited to, to be here with you today. Thank you for having me. Stephanie, thanks so much for being here. And no, it was not intentional having uh, three Latinas from Yuma, Arizona, but Yuma obviously rolls deep and is representing quite well here. So uh, thanks for pointing that out. So as we mentioned, it is National Hispanic Heritage Month. 
When you think of Hispanic heritage and the celebration of Hispanic heritage, let's say specifically here in Arizona, what sorts of things come to mind? Amanda, let's start with you. Well, I was born and raised in Mexico. So as a Hispanic immigrant of this country, the first thing that comes to my mind is my heritage. And I think all of us have very strong roots in the country where our parents are from or where we're from. And so that I celebrated with great pride and, um, and think that all of us here in Arizona, they are Hispanics or in this country, they unite us by this strong roots of where we're coming from. Our families are strong, our families are united, and there's always an incredible uh, force that all of us, cousins and second cousins, and it's amazing uh, how we can track our ancestors and family members to a long chain of uh, family and loved ones. So it's just a very strong feeling that, that I feel I'm very proud to be a Hispanic and uh, in my case, Mexican origin. You know, when, whenever we work with Hispanic communities, especially at Vitalist Health Foundation, it seems like that family tie, the family bond is such a common denominator that stretches across so many Hispanic communities here in the state. Stephanie Flores, is that something that resonates with you when you think about Hispanic heritage in the state? Certainly, I can jump in real quick. You know, I, I really think a lot about the beautiful diversity that our culture brings to the table. There is so much talent, so much resilience, so much grit. Um, I'm first generation American, but my parents are from Sonora. So uh, they're, they're, they're first generation immigrants to this country. And like a lot of families in, in Yuma, we came through the farm labor movement. And so just the talent, the wisdom, the knowledge, the perspective that our, our community brings to the table is something that I treasure. I also think about the, the resilience that it takes for our community to achieve in a society and in systems that are not designed for our success, right? And so um, I, I think about all of the perseverance that it takes. And ultimately, that's why we're here. That's why all I think all three of us are here to build more vibrant communities together. And certainly, Marcus, with the work that you all do at Vitalist Health Foundation, I think that's what the collective wants, right? To really create vibrant communities where everyone has an opportunity to be healthy and thriving and a successful family. And so, yeah, that's that's what I think about. And it's it's such a great time to celebrate, for sure. Yeah, if I can add something, there's not a lot that I can add after Amanda and Stephanie, really. But um, one of the things that I can say is that I, I think about the Hispanic community as the backbone, really building our not only our communities, but our country. If you look at the leadership that we have in Arizona, if you look at the leadership that we have, usually, and, and really proud to say that there's a lot of women in the leadership roles, as, as you can see with Amanda and, and Stephanie, really, we have grown. And, and the Hispanic community is not known as it used to be, because before you saw the Hispanic community as the ones that came and did the work that nobody wanted to do, like the farm worker work, but now you're seeing the professionals. We're really working with our Hispanic community, especially with our youth, trying to build that professionalism with them, because as Stephanie mentioned, a lot of us came because of the farm labor movement as migrant braceros, because my family, I was really introduced into the United States when I was brought into, into uh, the U.S. in 69. But I was, 
I had traveled all the way to California. Different world, totally different world from the border community where I, where I was really used to be at. And so to be the outsider, to be the one that was looked at down, not really because I didn't know the language, all the things. And still, we still have a lot of those things happening. But now you can see that the leadership that we have uh, been able to bring is because of the resilience, because of the hard work, because of the commitment, because of the passion that we have for our communities as well. Where does that come from? Where does that grit and resiliency come from in the Hispanic community? Because that's something that, Flora, you touched on and Stephanie, you touched on it as well. I think it just comes with you, your gut. You know, I was grown in a farm worker community, as you know. My background, I was a farm worker for 23 years as well. So being in that area, doing that workforce, really being proud of what work you do. It doesn't really matter what work you're doing, as long as you're passionate and you're doing the best that you can. And I think that you learn about resiliency. You learn about being proud of what you're doing. And really, it doesn't really matter. But you continue and always trying to see, how do you improve yourself? How do you want to make sure that you are the role model for your kids? Because they're coming. They're looking at you. They're learning from us. Or they're, we're our first teachers for them. So we want to be the role model. So, of course, you want to make sure that they learn from you, that they can do anything they want if they just push themselves enough. And Marcos, for me, it comes from my bring up, my two parents, both educators, and in my family, the brothers and sisters were five, and they really encouraged us to believe that we can accomplish the things that we can dream, but also, but most of all, the hard work, that things are not going to come just free or, or easy, that we have to work for what we want and never give up. And there might be different ways to get to where you want to be. But education was the number one line in my house. My parents expected me to finish my bachelor's degree. I'm a chemist. I graduated from University of Arizona. I had a brother that was a civil engineer. My sister's an architect. So that education that my parents maybe didn't have, but they had a level of education, that a strong vision that we can do better and that the future generations can do always better than their previous one. And that I think is where a lot of us come from that background, a strong education, the focus that we can do better than than our past generations. And we can learn so much from them to bring forward a better future for all of us. I think that resilience comes from our ancestors, from our parents, but also from life lessons. I think Flora mentioned the discrimination that many of us have endured through the years for in many different levels that I can think of. A lot of people feel uncomfortable calling discrimination, but it is discrimination, no, no matter what, how you put it in. You know, I'm not going to go into different situations, but in my career, coming into the United States, working in my master's degree, that's how I came into this country. My language was a barrier, of course. So as people that don't hear you speak perfect English already assume that you are uneducated and not smart at all, right? Um, and that you have to always prove yourself. Even in the legislature when I was a senator, even though that, I, a little bit isolation because they knew I'm a Hispanic, but even among Hispanics of the, of the first generation, of the second generation, I felt even isolated because I actually came in 
as an as a girl, adult um, to study in United States. I didn't have my my background as a farm worker. Or my family were business, but it's a different take on on the different aspects of how do you always have to prove yourself and show others that you can do that. So you get used to that, but then you feel this resilience that gets to a point that you don't have to prove that, right? Your, uh, your work and your experience shows that. So I hope nobody is trying to prove anything, but on the fact that you're being recognized for who you are. And I think that we're getting to that point that people are recognizing Hispanics for who we are and not by stereotyping Hispanics. I feel like one thing I'm learning as, as we engage parents in our Parent Educator Academy, some of our, our next generation leaders and the programs that we run, my biggest takeaway is that we all have very similar stories, whether you're first generation American or first generation immigrant or fifth generation Arizonan, you know, that you've been here for years. I think as Latinos, to me, the like the common thread is that we have this fight in us as a culture to like, we say, siempre tienes que salir adelante. So siempre te tienes que echar pa'lante, right? Like it's always, you gotta move forward regardless of what barrier is in front of you. We are constantly like, we grow up in a culture of like pa'lante, 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 seguir y seguir y empujar. And I think that makes us a resilient community. But it also tells you a lot about the barriers that we face, right? As, as my colleagues here have mentioned, is like we're constantly facing barriers that we have to push over, that we have to overcome. And I think that's part of our work, right, is how are we building a, a true community that is creating opportunity for all? And, and so families don't have to fight as hard to achieve, but that we all have a level playing field and access to opportunity in this country. I love the way you said that you're mentioning of barriers and having to constantly push down barriers or get over barriers. And each of you and the organizations that you represent are doing just that. So talk a little bit about the barriers that your organizations are trying to overcome. How did you come into these positions? Why is it necessary for your individual organizations to exist in the way that they do? I think that one of the big challenges their organization has had and how we have driven this organization to who we are is the fact that here in South County, when I came to Yuma County, moved from Los Angeles, it was a totally different world, of course, but the gaps and disparities were a hundred and times more than any other community that I learned in Los Angeles. There was no access to healthcare, no readily access into this area more so here in San Luis and Somerton in the southern part of the county. So I could not believe at that point that he, you know, we were out in the 1980s, 1990s, and yet families have no access to readily access to primary care, prenatal care, and all those things. We're talking about being a powerful nation, wealthy nation in the world, and then I'm going into a third world country that is Arizona, southern border in Arizona. Uh, with all the gaps in care that was existed. So for me, it was to try to change that. Even though the need was here, so the push was to always show that there's this disparity, these gaps. 
And even though we send all the data and I gather all the data and their analysis and statistics and everything, still resources don't come readily and easily. And so for years, a lot of these communities and like organization like mine has to struggle and work real hard to break those barriers, to bring resources, to establish, to the fact that I got tired from expecting other organizations to expand services, that at the beginning, we were just an area health education center, an AHEC center. And because of the lack and despair that I saw, I basically turned around and asked the folks, can you increase this access to this area? And I said, no, we're not interested in South County. And I said, okay. Then I started doing the primary care services in South County and expanding to where we are today. So there's always this pushback and the stereotyping of these communities that I keep saying is stereotyping because that is a stereotyping. Thinking that these communities didn't need any of those services that are so important for families to have access to care, mental health, substance abuse counseling. I mean, you go to the whole housing, affordable housing. And so finally, we feel that um, after all these years, that people are paying attention to South County for the one reason that is the fastest growing communities in Arizona right now. Amanda, your, your comments drive home the difference between disparities and inequities. And what we started off this conversation talking about are the inequities, the drivers that ultimately create disparities. And while our work, Amanda, your work in, in access to healthcare is really trying to address those disparities, obviously our conversation was rooted first and foremost in inequities in things like discrimination, stereotyping, sexism, that ultimately manifest in, whether it's access to care disparities or education or workforce, that it's actually what's driving a lot of the issues that we see in communities today. It doesn't go away if I may just, Marcus, um, because just recently, you know, my, my clinics are the, the lead agency that is testing in Yuma County. We have tested in Yuma County close to 80% of all the people tested in Yuma. And that's over 145,000 for us. And yet we have one, a faculty member, an educator in Yuma, that when it called my clinic to say, where are you located? And we said, well, the closest to Yuma will be Somerton. She asked if Somerton was in Yuma County. This is an educator, a higher education educator. Yeah. So that yeah. just tell you that even in this compounds of Yuma County, we still have people that don't even travel to South County. I think Floor knows about this because uh, we always, on and off, we talk about these kind of issues. There was like the separation of those folks in South County and then the city of Yuma. And uh, I've been bringing up this issue more with some of the leaders in Yuma. And I hope that finally people understand. And the way they're understanding is that economic drive in South County now, bigger than the city of Yuma. And that's what the leaders and Hispanic leaders here in South County, we were determined to do. Because it's not just building clinics and access to care. We're bringing an economic drive where people were providing better jobs. We're training in the healthcare professionals, like you know my college here in Somerton. And we're bringing the salaries up. 
And that is driving the economy right now, both in San Luis and Somerton, and then everything that comes along with, with it. The fact that in San Luis, when I started the groundbreaking of my new facility, which I hope that one day you come and visit, the San Luis Medical Mall, uh, we started a couple, two years ago. There were desert around me. And today, there are more than 3,000 beautiful homes, beautiful neighborhoods that have been built. That housing development is amazing. And more to come. A, a, we'll come a, a hotel, a school. All these things are popping up around us. That's the economic drive that healthcare can do in a rural community. I want to dive deeper into that economic driver piece. Floor, I know that one of the things that the work of ASCHOW is attempting to do is actually affect the ability of Hispanic communities, frankly, to become more of an economic driver, particularly through the lens of community health workers and ultimately getting them onto some sort of trajectory potentially to enter into additional positions within the healthcare setting. So talk a little bit about CHWs, community health workers, and the work that you do through ASCHOW in order to grow that workforce? Well, you know that community health workers have been around for many, many years. We can go back to the 50s, 60s with the community health representatives, native tribes, and we can have the promotoras, the neighborhood comadres, the amigas, the friends that were helping each other. But really, when we started thinking about promotoras and we started looking at the workforce, we were seen as just as the lay workers as the people from community that are coming up we were not seen as a professional so one of the things that when i was invited in 2000 to be part of the a meeting in tucson i came and i, I looked around and was just to meet and to talk about different things and how it's impacting the our community health so we started talking and just thinking about the similarities but also the challenges and barriers that we all faced very different, even though we were from different communities in the same state. We started thinking about, oh, how can we really start working together and start gathering? So we did. And throughout the years, we were talking about just how do we strengthen the promotor model, CHW model. Then it went, there was a boom around the country where everybody started thinking about credentialing and certification and recognition of CH, the CHW model. When I saw that, I really understood the need for us because we, as community health workers, promoters, we did not recognize our own value. When they asked us who we were, we talked about the programs that we were managing. We talked about the services that we were providing, but we did not talk about our profession. That's one of the things at first that I recognized that we did not know who we were as a profession, as a workforce. So I started working around that in, in 2010, 2011, just uniting the CHW workers, traveling around the state, just meeting and asking, how do you see yourself in five years and 10 years? Thinking about how do you see yourself further in your education? Don't stay where you're at because one of the things that we're always talking about is moving forward. Stephanie said, you always move forward. You always see the future. What do you want to, how do you want to grow? A lot of them that were all, you know, the promotora model usually were older women that were working in their communities. And now we see the our workforce is really expanding. We have youth, we have 
teenagers, we have young adults that are part of the workforce. So one of the things that we saw, Marcus, is the inequalities for the CHW workforce, because still, even though we have done so much work in uniting and bringing and strengthening the CHW workforce, we still see that the community health workers from Autores, they're in the lowest paid positions in their communities, in their organizations. They are still not recognized as a profession, even within their own organization that might, they might be working for 5, 10, 20 years. They're still the promotores and they do not seem as the professionals. One of the things that I've been working around is the integration of CHWs into the healthcare team. It's not just hiring CHWs to come and help, it's to come and work together. So the CHWs can really work at the top of the scope. If they do that, uh, the other providers, the psychologists, they will also be able to work at the top of the scope for our, our health care will really be enhanced by the CHW that comes and works. Because we know already the data shows that the CHWs can really impact the health outcomes of our community and our health system. So one of the things that we have done at ASHA is not only bringing the CHW workforce as a profession, as a workforce, as a recognition. That's one of the things that I always, when I testify for the legislation, I always said, the workforce, the recognition, we want recognition, we want respect from other professions. Be able to say that we are a professional. We're not just the aid for a group or for an organization. ASHA has been really working in, and like Amanda said, it starts in-house. It starts really recognizing who you have as employees and recognizing and respecting them with uh, fair salaries. And with ASHA, and we're really trying to do that where where we really have our staff, everybody that comes in starts really high. It doesn't, <laughs> they don't start in minimum at all. And it's, it's a really, we're trying to put a standard because we, we can do it. We're a small organization. And we always say this, it's about the management, it's about the direction that you want to take. With ASHA, it's really about how do we build our own workforce and really continue strengthening because the recognition is there. Now it needs to put the funding where it needs to be at as well. It gets to the question of how do we assess value as a community? What you're saying is community health workers, promotoras, they bring a ton of value to the healthcare system, but they're not always compensated in that way. But they bring a ton of value to the healthcare system and the community. Stephanie, in your work in education, I feel like there's some parallels here. As you guys were talking about like economic drivers, you know, at all in education, we certainly believe that. Latino student attainment, we, we not only have a moral imperative to support Latino students in Arizona, but we have an economic imperative. The Greater Phoenix Economic Council shared with us that if we reduce the Latino dropout rate by half, the additional graduates would earn $31 million, which translates to $27 million in spending for the state. The economics of this, it just makes sense. We're 46% of the K-12 student population, but the gap in representation is significant. We're only 16% of the teaching workforce, and I serve on a school board. We're less than 13% of school board members across the state. And so that gap in representation, our theory at All in Education is that if we close the representation gap, we can close the attainment gap on the back end, and our community Arizona has to change how we view and how we invest in the Latino community here because for decades, we have been viewed as a problem that needed to be solved. There's too many Latinos here. 
rather than an asset that's deserving investment. There are Latinos here who are bilingual, bicultural, resilient. We should invest in this talent in the community. And by just that shift in mindset and how we approach an entire community will change the culture, you know, will change the outcomes that we see on the back end. I have the privilege of serving on the Phoenix Union School Board. Our demographics have always trended 10 years ahead of the city and 20 years ahead of the state of Arizona. Right now in Phoenix Union, we're 90% students of color, 82% Latino. 77% of my kids qualify for free and reduced price lunch. So just sit with that for a moment. If 82% of the state's population, 90% of the state's population in 20 years is almost 80% poor, what does that say about our economy? this is all connected. And Marcus, we've talked, you guys put out work around the social determinants of health. We believe there are social determinants to education as well. There are factors that kids come to their classrooms with that are outside of the school community that ultimately impact attainment. If a child is hungry, they're not going to learn. If a child is worried about shelter, they are not going to learn. If a child is sick, they are not going to learn. They don't have access to healthcare. They don't have access to social emotional supports. So we have to collectively as a state start shifting and rethinking how we think about community investment because all of these things matter and it's a real umbrella. It's not a one size fits all solution, but we have to start thinking about the whole community, about children holistically and start really building a child well-being system where children are healthy and vibrant because ultimately they are the future workforce. We also work really closely with parents and we think parents are an untapped pool of talent. And we talk about the teacher shortage crisis in Arizona. There is a shortage of people that wanna be teachers because of the low wages. Certainly it's not a lucrative career. But there are a lot of parents out there who need economic opportunity and who would see this as a really great career pathway if we chose to support them and invest in them, invest in them as as talent while we continue to develop the prestige, if you will, of the teaching profession. We've seen a lot of success with Parent Educator Academy. Just our first small cohort last spring, we had 27 graduates, 90% participation and retention in the program. A handful of our parents are, have now expressed interest in careers in education. One of them is officially employed at San Luis High School now. And so they are very interested in this. All of them consider themselves advocates for their children. They want to be more involved in their child's education. For us, we know that our community cares about student achievement and attainment. We just have to give them the tools around how to navigate the system. It's For a lot of them, it's a system they just don't understand. Even if they went through it themselves, they still don't understand it. How do we rethink community investment? How do we rethink community investment to be more than individual silos? How are your organizations thinking outside of the box? I know you all are. Yeah, we're not about healthcare only. I think that we're about empowering families. And with that empowering of families is 
bringing all the resources that we can as an agency serving a target community, rural communities, whether it's San Luis, all the way through Bullhead City, Parker, like how is it working with the tribal Indian nations? So it's about empowering families and we do it in different ways. We can empower the young folks to follow health careers. We have programs with the AHEADS that do that. We also bring them on site to learn about future careers, but also we're investing in the youth. We are bringing a teaching center where they can earn a certificate to enter the healthcare field. But given a little touch of what they would like to learn, whether it's a promotora in salud, whether it's a billing encoder or phlebotomist or medical assistant, certified nursing assistant, they come in, they feel that where they want to go. We have graduates that have become nurse practitioners. We have graduates that gone into the PA program. We have graduates that become engineers. So not everybody will go into the health field, but I think the fact that they can achieve and earn a certificate at that level that they didn't think they can do to step in, they didn't think that they were smart enough to do it, and then they gain that level of education, then they enter the bachelor's degree and they say, yes, we can do this. The empowering of families, it comes all around because the family structure is not just about taking care of one individual, let's say a person with diabetes. The family empowers about the whole, taking care of that individual, but the rest of the family as well. And that's how we go one family at a time, but at the same time, we're able to impact a large number of individuals. They are gaining the entrance to job placements and higher education. And with that level, I think that you empower communities to enter the higher level of uh, salaries as well. Floor talk about minimum wage and, and promotores. I think in our agency, there's no such a thing as minimum wage. It's way above any entry level. We know and recognize the need of the community economically, and we go way above. So my probably entry level might be $16, $18, $20. And so it's way above. I think that's something that communities need to understand that the poverty level right now is not a living level. <laughs> and so if we are going to collectively impact everybody in a community to empower, it has to start at that level and give the families the economic drive that the families itself, they need to, to thrive. Otherwise, Marcos, we always had talked about social determinants and lifting the poverty level, the people at a poverty level. And so we won't have to be talking about the children depending on the breakfast or the meals in school all the time, that they will have a legitimate job that will reimburse them for the quality of work that they do. That's the ultimate hope is that the work that we're all talking about on this podcast and doing day to day will actually reduce the need for additional food boxes or certain one-off services that ultimately keep families afloat right now. We're mentioning, Marcus, we mentioned also that the job placement of our students or even the job placement of our clients and patients that come into our clinic. Because right now we are 
addressing not only the integration of mental health and primary care, but physical health, but we're also addressing is this individual an employer or not? And bringing them into the job market, into the training programs that our community can is, it offers, but also making sure that they enter in the work level. We don't stop until that person gets a job. We have one program that's called the Transitional Living Program. This is folks that have gone through rehabilitation of substance abuse and opiates. And we go into a program, which is a very strict program. They have to agree to go through this. And we provide them the housing and the support to be able to start maintaining a life free of drugs. And it's a six month program, but at the end, that individual will have his own individual housing or go back to the family they loved once they at one point rejected them and now they trust them. And, but they also will have a job and become independent individual. Our success rate is 75%. Our job placement is 89%. So those are the two sex stories that we can say that just because we deliver healthcare in a rural community, but it's more than just delivering healthcare. Great example. When you think about community health workers and promotoras in this conversation, how does it resonate with CHWs and how they're thinking about being more than healthcare providers? Yeah, I think that uh, CHWs can never be just one thing, you know, community health workers do so much things. And one of the things that our role probably is just providing, like Amanda said, the leadership and the empowerment. I always think about this with my own kids. I remember when my kids, uh, they were small and they fell down and, and they were like crying in the floor and said, oh, so you're getting comfortable down there. So you like it there. No, well, get up and dust yourself and couldn't go play because it's going to get late. You're not going to be able to play anymore. So you just let them know that they have to be resilient. They have to be making their own decisions and choices because community helpers can work in a place and they can be comfortable providing the diabetes education, self-management, domestic violence, whatever. But if you don't empower them to see the whole broad inequalities that we are facing, I don't know if you know, Marcus, but I'm also an instructor at Arizona Western College. I teach the CHW program. And one of the things that I teach my students from the beginning is, how do I see my neighborhood with a different lens? With the inequality, the advocacy, the, the movement, the vision of change, how do I make them see different? So we always talk about those inequalities that we all face every single morning when we get out of their home. So one of the things that CHWs are doing right now is really looking at discrimination, racism, and we're looking at that. And like I mentioned to you, Marcus, in the, in the conference that I saw you last time, we're really working in developing that training, that curriculum, that empowerment for CHWs, because that is a very difficult conversation when you don't know that you're going through discrimination and racism, because we're so acculturated into it. That's our daily normal life we, that we have faced every single day that we've been in this nation. But again, we don't know it. We just live it. So one of the things is like, get down the current. I think that COVID brought a lot of challenges, a lot of really bad things to our community, to our health system, to our families. But it really brought a great opportunity to be able to look at those items that were always there, but we didn't talk about them. So now it's in the open, it's the, you know, the current has been opened and now we can talk about raising discrimination and what's going on, how our communities are facing that 
uh, challenges every single day with housing, with employment, even when they go in and get access to care in some places. And a lot of times they're facing so many challenges and they're really like not knowing how to respond. So CHWs are not only providing that support in the health system, but we're also looking at the social determinants of health. All right, so now Marcus is going to be devil's advocate. I'm going to be the bad guy here. You look at recent reports about Hispanic Americans in Arizona. They are an economic juggernaut for the state of Arizona. When you look at where they started coming into this country and where they are now, they're doing fantastic. The challenges of the past when you talk about discrimination and racism are just that of the past. Where else do Hispanic communities have to go in Arizona? I thought all this stuff was over and done with. Yeah, if we, if we look at it, yeah, we don't have any discrimination, right? But one of the things is, like I mentioned before, Marcus, we need to start talking about it because it's it's a still a closed box for many communities in many areas. You don't talk about that because there's nothing. It's really not an open. You're, you don't see it until you see it. And when you see it, it's because you go through it and you recognize it just went through a person that was racist. They did a comment. And they did it just because you were there. So it's really not a conversation that is an everyday conversation. And of course, everybody wants in politics, you know, in every single that you're going to be reading out there, whatever you're going to be reading is like everything is good. Everything is normal. You know, it's a great state to work in. It's a great community. They're great organizations. But really, the reality is that we are still suffering discrimination and racism every single day. But we just don't notice it because we don't talk about it. And one of the things is that we need to bring out around the open is to and having those conversations with every single individual. Because if you talked and you start telling them what is racism discrimination in the way that they can understand it, they're gonna say, Oh, yep, that's it. So just information empowerment again comes back to word empowerment. Stephanie, Amanda. I think about two things here. One, I would say just look at the data and from my perspective. So I'm a former social worker, like I'm a social worker by heart. Still, I wear it on my sleeve turned educator. And so I saw firsthand who we were serving when it came to the cases I was working as a social worker. I see firsthand in my schools. If you just look at the data, the under-resourced communities in our school system are overwhelmingly and disproportionately low-income communities of color. And so is segregation just a thing of the past? Or did we just get smarter about how we segregate kids? I'm just going to throw that little nugget out there. Because now you look at the data, underperforming, under-resourced schools are disproportionately low-income communities of color in Arizona, that a large segment of that population is Latino. On the back end, we look at how we hold schools accountable and what letter grades we give them. An A school in Arizona, oftentimes, if you look at the letter grade system, they are typically more affluent communities and more white. D and failing schools, more low-income communities and more communities of color. So again, is the system working for all kids or was it even designed to work for every single community? So I'll throw that ball back in your court as the devil's advocate, Marcus. And then the other thing I will say to the comment earlier around how do we change our thinking around how we invest in community One thing that we are really committed to at All In Education, certainly our title says we're all in 
all in education. But one thing that I have known to be true as a social worker, as a educator, is that I am lying to myself if I don't advocate for low-income families, if I don't advocate for affordable health care, if I don't advocate for access to economic opportunities, to safe communities, healthy food, nutrition. Because I think this idea, I, and I was in a conversation with, with other education leaders, our lane is education and we have to stay in our lane. We can't advocate on health issues or poverty issues or economic issues that mentality has not worked for kids and families. We have to start thinking about a holistic child. They need support. They need a family unit that is healthy, that has access to opportunity. Because if a child is worried about, again, where they're, where they're going to sleep tonight or whether or not their parents are going to be home because they're at risk of deportation, that child is not going to learn. They are not going to walk into your classroom ready to learn. And so these other social factors impact attainment. And we have to move away from my lane is education, your lane is, he is healthcare. You stay in your lane, I'll stay in mine. Because that hasn't worked for us. We have to think about whole units and we have to have a holistic approach to how we support kids and families across the state. Yeah, it's the whole notion that systems are perfectly designed to get the outcomes that they achieve. And if the outcomes that are being achieved are not the outcomes that you want, then you got to rethink the system. We talked about some of the challenges and the barriers within Hispanic communities. What gives you hope for Hispanic communities in Arizona? For me, it's our, our young generations that think that I love to go to the graduations of my college and to see other young folks that, that we have hired to work in the different fields and visiting with different schools to talk about the kids and what they dream about. Early, Stephanie mentioned the high school dropouts. In San Luis, we had at one point the highest percentage or high school dropouts. And today is probably the one that has the least high school dropouts. Our kids are graduating and not just going to any school. They're going to Ivory School. They're going to Harvard, Yale, Stanford, uh, you name it. And we're so proud going to the military academies, whether it's the Air Force Academy, the Naval Academy. So it's so proud to see the kids that now they have been empowered to see the bright future that they can get to that. And the leaders that have stepped before them to say, yes, we're there with you and to empower them all the way through and to come back. You know, many years, Regional Center has been since 1998 with the door-to-door -door campaigns. And we started with a new model of promotores called Vision Fronteriza and Rio Colorado promotores. And we went door-to-door -to, -door to assess the family's needs with that, we also included high school kids to come with us. And I selected most of the time those that were kids that were failing in school. I said, don't give me the brightest kids. I know those are going to make it. I want the ones that really having a hard time. They maybe they're in juvenile having some issues with juvenile courts and they're already in the, going into that system of the juvenile probation. And so we engage those kids in learning the community and understanding the community. Some of those kids today, they have masters in public health, they have gone through the whole, but you take them and see them the reality of where our communities are and where we need more leaders into it. 
So my hope in this young generation is there 100%. At one time doing an interview that I was doing with some officials from the city of Yuma and leaders from all over, um, they were talking about describing South County as a community of almost putting down there's low level of education, high school dropouts, and all the negative tones in South County. And I was very discouraged to hear that that's what they were in their minds. And then one time I sat down with this student from ASU who was competing for nursing degree and was from Somerton. She came to interview me about health policy. And I said to her before she left, I said, give me three things that come to your mind when you think about this communities in South County. And she said, beautiful family unity, Hispanic families are wonderful, family happy, who are united no matter what. And then secondly, say the spirit, the cultural background that we bring, the resilience that we work very hard to obtain the things that we want in life. But she had this positive outlook of these communities. And that's the hope that we think that it gives me that our Hispanic communities are gonna be the best ever. But we do need to empower our individuals to get into positions of city council, legislators, the high school board members at all levels. Because if we have that majority of representation in areas that we are like here in Yuma County where 60 plus percent are Hispanic now, we gotta get them to make sure that they are running for positions that will give the leadership and move the direction into a different way that Hispanics and overall the community will see the future differently than what it is. So I have great hope that that's going to happen. That's tough to follow up. Floor, what gives you hope about the Hispanic communities in Arizona? Well, I think that Manda just said it all, but I do believe that it's the youth, the leadership that we've seen, but also the opportunity for all of us that we're not longer working in silos, that we are really networking, that we're reaching out, that we're collaborating, that we're, we're recognizing the needs of our Hispanic community, and we're really working towards those needs. I think that we have been developing programs, like Amanda was mentioning, to empower our youth, to empower our, our leadership, because we, they are the future. And if we don't really put them in the places and we provide them the tools, they're not going to get there. So it's our turn to, to be safeguarding our, our communities and make sure that they are leading us. By identifying those leaders, Amanda's mentioned, she has, and I have to recognize, Amanda has done so much with youth for many, many years. And, and before I used to say, man, how do you empower those youth? But really, you bring, them, you bring them to where you have the program, you empower them, you provide them the opportunity. A lot of times, Marcus, in our communities, we see our youth that they are hoping to get a job at McDonald's. They are hoping to get a job at Burger King, those are the hopes that they have, but we need to really make sure that they see their future a lot bigger. It is a good place to start if they need to start it, but giving them the opportunity, the lift to go into another workforce, like Amanda mentioned, like Amanda has opened so many opportunities for those youth with her programs that she has, but also through the educational system, we need to make sure that when they're in the middle school and high schools, they know about all the programs out there and we connect them and we network with them and we provide them again the information and the tools. How do they get into that leadership position? And of course, 
if you have an opportunity with your organization, if with your programs, bring the youth, bring them as peers, bring them as volunteers, bring them whatever, but just introduce them into the workforce because a lot of them, they have futures, they have a lot of visions, but they don't know how to get there. We need to show them the path of how to get to their future where they want to be and then where they want to be as a grown-up. We tell them as, as an adult, what do you see yourself as an adult? A lot of times they don't have the vision that far, but if you give them the path, I think they, they will be able to visualize where they want to be. Stephanie, bring us home. What gives you hope about Hispanic communities in AZ? I've had the privilege of leading Phoenix Union High School District for about six and a half years now. And I have to tell you, it is the young people. Um, it is their, it is them um, and their families who give me hope because they are so talented. And I mean, if the pandemic didn't show us, these kids were creating support networks for each other and, and teaching each other how to navigate the online classroom and helping their parents out. I mean, some of these kids needed to work and, and continue to work because parents lost employment during pandemic. And so it is the resilience in the youth that keeps me hopeful. But also just today from my team, our Parent Educator Academy our fall cohort launches today. We had over 350 parents apply to the program. We have 102 parents starting this evening. And just to give you all a sneak preview of who's in the cohort, among them, a 72-year-old woman who's learning English, taking college classes, and dreams of being a lawyer. A bilingual mom of a kindergartner who teaches high school and is on a superintendent track. An abuelito who recently adopted his elementary age grandchildren and just learned how to Zoom last week. He is participating in a parent educator academy. And so it is the it is our, our community that keeps me hopeful because, man, are we fighters. And, and we know that we have talent. We know that there is talent in the community. We just need an opportunity to thrive. Thank you, Amanda, Flor, and Stephanie, for your inspiring work and for reminding us of the power of Hispanic communities in Arizona. In reflecting on this conversation, I couldn't help but think about those movie scenes. You know, the ones where there's a person in the center of the frame, and they're moving at normal speed, but everything around them is swirling in a frenzy at ten times the speed. And despite all the chaos around them, despite whatever is thrown at them, they keep moving forward as a unit as a family. That's Hispanic heritage. And as our guest emphasized, the family is the foundation and the youth are the hope. That is universal. Many thanks to our guests and our team at Gordon C. James Public Relations and producer Rob Trigg at Star Worldwide Networks. If you liked this podcast, feel free to like and share it on your favorite social media platforms. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.